Hello, and welcome to the Catapult Network's Supercharging Innovation Podcast. My name is Jeremy Silver, Chair for this year of the Catapult Network. In this series, I'll be talking with some of the UK's top industry and academic leaders, business people and parliamentarians to get their views on the future of innovation. On today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Julia King, Baroness Brown of Cambridge. Baroness Brown is Chair of the Carbon Trust and a non-executive director of Orsted. She was vice chair of the Climate Change Committee until 2021 and continues to chair their Adaptation Committee. Baroness Brown has just stepped down as a non-executive director of the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult. And she also served as a non-executive director of the Green Investment Bank, supporting the development of the UK's offshore wind industry. She's an engineer by training with a career spanning academia and industry including senior business and engineering posts at Rolls-Royce and a decade spent as the Vice-Chancellor of Aston University. Julia, a real pleasure to welcome you today. Thanks, Jeremy. It's good to be here. It's excellent to have you with us. Throughout this series, I've been asking people for their thoughts on innovation and the relationships between universities, catapults and industry. I thought, well, as someone who's, you know, during your career, you've given a lot of time in each of those areas, actually. I'd love to explore with you the the importance of of those different pieces in the innovation system. And so perhaps I should start, though, because you've just stepped off the board of the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult after six years, and I think you were on the Innovate UK Council as well. I just wonder, when you think about the role of catapults in the wider context of innovation in the UK, how do you think catapults fit into that wider landscape? The first thing I suppose I'd say is that but catapults are not one beast. And I think that's one of the reasons sometimes why our politicians and parliamentarians find it quite hard to understand them, because, of course, they're all quite different. There are some similarities between, I think, the, the manufacturing catapult and the offshore renewable energy catapult in that, you know, they both provide some amazing bits of kit that some companies wouldn't be able to afford and give companies access to develop products that uh, they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. But of course, some of the other catapults are mainly sort of analytical and brain powered rather than dependent on physical assets. So they're very different beasts, aren't they? But I think one of their important roles is that providing facilities to, to small companies, particularly, that they wouldn't be able to afford for themselves to demonstrate new products and new techniques and new processes. And also that opportunity that that potentially brings of being a relationship broker between large companies and small companies. And I know that's something that the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult is very focused on and certainly sees it its big kit as an important part of, you know, attracting in the, the really big OEMs, the, you know, the Siemens, the General Electrics, the very big players in terms of the equipment for offshore wind, but actually then being able to introduce them to small companies who may have new techniques or new technologies for inspecting their blades or measuring vibration or looking at at leading edge repair or the ability of saying, well, if you're coming to use essentially this nationally subsidized test facility that the UK has funded, then as part of that deal, we need you to be prepared to do some work with small supply chain companies with exciting and relevant technologies. So there's that kind of matchmaking at that end of the spectrum. But I think it's also really important that catapults sit in that space 
that does the same for bringing universities and companies and whether that's universities and small companies or whether that's universities and big companies. I don't think that matters really. Both is really important. But helping to be part of that bridging infrastructure between research and application. I still find that, you know, in, in universities, there are still a lot of researchers who haven't had experience in industry, who don't understand sometimes the constraints that an industry will have in using their ideas. And so they don't know how to present them in ways that will make it easier for them to be picked up and used. That's really interesting. And I love that distinction that you're making there between the role of small companies in this context and being able to introduce small companies in the supply chain and where the universities fit in. And, and at times, I think people have, have described a quite a simplistic sort of linear process coming out of universities. And I just wonder, you know, given your time at Aston and your, your sort of insight into the way the universities work, do you think we should be doing more to, to make universities and catapults play better together? And, and do, we, do we need to do that in a different way, do you think? I certainly think there is more to do. I mean, I think from the very early stages of when catapults were set up, I think there was a certain kind of negative feeling in some parts of the, the university sector that they didn't engage some of them anyway I think again generalization and it, you know catapults are are all different but there was a general feeling that they weren't facing and supporting universities they were almost turned their backs slightly on universities and I think what I see now is the catapults doing a lot to remedy that and to engage much more closely with the academic base which I think is a very good thing I think universities need people who can sort of wander around them and see really clever ideas and be able to say that could solve a problem in this sector and you know university technology transfer teams and things they do a bit of that but of course you know quite often they're quite a small number of people covering university of hundreds of thousands of researchers in a whole broad range of sectors you can't expect somebody in a university technology transfer office to be able to know what it is the offshore wind industry needs or what it is the satellite industry needs or whatever. They may have a bit of knowledge in some of those spaces. One of the things we're trying to do in the Henry Royce Institute, which is the UK's National Institute for Advanced Materials, which, which has its core base at Manchester, although it involves a very wide network across uh, UK universities. One of the things we want to do there in our hub building is actually have some hot desking for catapults because because all, almost all catapults will have some problems that can be solved by materials developments and getting people from the catapult who understand the industry, who know what the industry is looking for, where the industry's you know real challenges are, getting them in where academics can come and talk to them or where they can wander around and be updated on what are the latest development? It's very interesting, isn't it? That there's a, a, a rather simplistic view that you, what you do with universities is you create spin-outs from them. Mm. And the spin-outs are the solution. And what we need to do is have more spin-outs and better spin-outs. But I think what you've just described is something a bit more sophisticated than that, really, because it's about acknowledging the fact that the outside-in perspective, the industry view, looking at what is being researched and worked on, may have as much value as the outside-in view of, of, oh, this is a good idea, let me see if I can commercialise it. I'd love to take you further on this, because I think, well, I, I'm excited to hear you say that, because I haven't heard very many people talking in such practical terms, because this is a practical matter. Getting people into the, the lab 
seeing what's there. And then then what, though, Julia? Where, would it, where does it go from there? One of the things that um, we've, we've done successfully at the Royce, actually, was um, one of our, our board members is the technical director of a, a major materials company. We said, well, wouldn't it be great to have some sandpits where we actually pull together academics from across the UK, not from one particular research group in one university, to look at problems that industry brings in. And so he got all of his colleagues across the businesses to say what were a their most difficult problems today and what were their most challenging concerns about the future and then we had a, a, a huge kind of challenge of sorting out confidentiality agreements between about seven different universities and a company but but you know we'll get through these things one day and then we had some really good sandpits where industry this, the company really brought a some of its most difficult current challenges but also some things it was really interested in in cracking for the future and we got these mixtures of academics who worked in you know related areas but in the science end of it thinking about what the next stages were and you know leading to a number of projects that we're going to be taking forward to see whether there are some sort of quite radical solutions to those problems and I think you know that's just one kind of mechanism I think we need all sorts of different mechanisms first of all for showcasing some of the things that academics are doing to industry recognizing that when you get people from industry they're often really busy and they're often quite focused on what the issues around them are so you've got to actually package what you want to tell them in a way that's going to spark an interest rather than what interests you sort of thing so putting yourself in other people's shoes and and then from that you know I would like that hopefully to get industry to think about having an interest in investing in in much longer term in more blue skies research possibly you know as groups of companies or as supply chain groups but getting them interested in having an influence on where some of the really interesting science is going. Because I think we miss that in the UK. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why some of our most interesting science doesn't actually get picked up in the UK and exploited. It's interesting that you've talked very graphically there about the needs of industry and and industry's pace of change and and speed of of activity compared with perhaps a, a sort of slow speed inside universities. Where do SMEs fit into that in your view? Is there a role for SMEs in that equation or is that, a, is that a, just a, a parallel strand? Well, of course, SMEs are even more diverse than catapults, aren't they? And you get SMEs who are kind of university spin-outs who, of course, speak the language of universities, who know how to knock on university doors and go and see physics departments or go and ask to use bits of kit because actually that's where they've come from and they know how it works. And you get SMEs who may have been going for years and who may not employ an enormous number of graduates who actually don't know how to knock on the doors of of universities and don't know how universities might be able to help them. So I think there's horses for courses. But one of the things we've found very helpful, actually, at the Royce Institute has been working with, um, is it CPI? I can never remember who are part of the the uh, high value manufacturing catapult. I can never remember its overarching three letter acronym. Uh, the CPI have been great at kind of doing a triage system for us. We've got a, a now uh, an MOU with them from Royce where SMEs will talk to CPI as a, and CPI will 
identify the ones who have a kind of absorptive capacity in a way to talk to academia and who also who have problems that that might be solved by some of the really fancy kit we've got in the Royce. And then the ones you have simpler, very straightforward problems that perhaps CPI themselves will deal with. And working with CPI on with this sort of triage system of, of saying, actually, these are the SMEs who can really benefit from working with the Royce uh, is very helpful because, again, a, a university or an institute like the Royce can't hope to engage with every SME who thinks they might have a materials problem. I think that's really interesting. And it is absolutely the case that each of the catapults, although they're all very different, they all have a, a depth of engagement with their own ecosystems of the, of the, mm. the range of companies around. And that that kind of service, I mean, it's very familiar to me as CEO of the digital catapult that we do something very similar, actually, for, for businesses of giving them some navigation, essentially, across the, the ecosystem of, of you know, quite fragmented ecosystem of startups and scale ups and so on. And we're trying to do that now with, with the offshore renewable energy catapult as well on, on the materials front, because the offshore renewable energy catapult have got collaborations on, on blades and gearboxes and all sorts of areas. And of course, many of the problems actually come down to being part of the problem is a materials problem. So it, being able to engage with them when they get to this is we've now got a materials problem, being able to kind of link with them and make the facilities and the capability in the in the UK's academic network available to them, I think is proving really helpful. You know, I think catapults are, universities and catapults and other kinds of institutes are learning how to work together. And I think, you know, if we see more of that, it will be hugely beneficial. I'm gonna change tack a little bit because later this year, the UK is gonna host the biggest climate change conference in the world, the COP26 in Glasgow. And you've been very involved in, in this whole area of emissions reduction and reducing our carbon emissions. How do you think we're doing in terms of, of progress to meet this, uh, you know, really quite ambitious challenge of, of 2050 net zero? Is there, and is there something that we should be doing specifically, do you think, at COP26? What sort of opportunity is it for the UK? It's clearly an opportunity for the UK to encourage others that legislation can be very effective. I think our Climate Change Act has been effective and has maintained very effectively cross-party support for a sort of common agenda on reducing emissions. And I think one of the, the crucial parts of it, which I would very much like to see adopted in our current environment bill, is having regular setting of intermediate targets so that it's not just a target 20 or 30 years away. There's every few years there is something that, uh, that governments have to be very focused on meeting. And I think getting the other countries to recognise that that kind of model can be very effective is helpful. And of course, the NDC process does that to some extent. Clearly, it's an opportunity to show off uh, UK technology and, and developments in the area. And one of those areas for me is that I, I genuinely think we have a lot of technology and capability in the uh, hydrogen area. We've got quite a number of companies um, in electrolyzers and fuel cells. We've got lots of companies who understand the system's nature of the hydrogen problem, whether at the kind of physical assets and engineering level or at the modeling kind of level. And I think there we've got a chance to do something we missed with offshore wind. In offshore wind, you know, we have the largest installed base of offshore wind, but we don't have a single original equipment manufacturer or indeed you know much in the way of developers although now we have BP and Shell getting into the area. It's been brilliant for reducing our emissions from electricity generation 
but it hasn't been brilliant for big UK companies. So we're kind of trying to make sure we get small companies into and supply chains engaged, but it, it's not like being at the top of the tree where things kind of flow down from. And I think in, in hydrogen, we've still got that opportunity if we move forward fast enough to be some of the original equipment manufacturers, to be exporting equipment, but also even potentially to be exporting hydrogen since Germany is so very, very focused on green hydrogen and we're not very far away. So that, that's, I think, an exciting opportunity. I mean, the other area that um, we've been doing some work on, obviously, as I'm sure you'll know, at the Royal Society has been um, digital and, and net zero. And something I'm sure we're well positioned for is really looking at how do we optimize the energy transition using digital, using data, using algorithms. And I think we're potentially very well positioned for that, partly because of uh, the nature of and maturity of our energy system, and partly obviously because of things like your catapult and the Turing Center and the capability we have in academia, but also in, in lots of tech spin-outs in that area. And when you look at the you know, the benefits of the digitalization of the energy system and the potential it gives for new business models. Somebody was talking to me about the new business models for transport, for essentially that you you rent your electric vehicle and it comes with free miles right. because the car company or the leasing company has negotiated with the generating company a deal for buying the electricity and all of that can work but only if all of the data that we have in the system becomes much more freely available and shared so we get a much more flexible electricity system uh, and we don't build assets that we don't need let me just come back a second on that because it's very interesting what you've said there you've, you've picked up on those two on two big areas where there really is an opportunity for the UK, where, where yeah. we've got a lot of the capabilities is there and we can identify it. You know, the government has been uh, very upfront about its industrial strategy and its green industrial revolution and the 10 point plan and so on. But it sounds to me from what you said there that you're almost saying, actually, those are two big bets and we should, we should bet big on those two things. But then you're also suggesting there's a whole hinterland of other things we could be doing. I mean, it seems to me that, that quite often we get a little bit confused about where we want to go. and we, we perhaps lack conviction in really pushing some big buttons. Do you, do you think that's right? I, I think I probably do. One thing that I'm you know, really passionate about, having worked for, for Rolls-Royce for eight years, is where is the next Rolls-Royce? Where is the next brilliant UK engineering company going to appear from? Because actually, I see so many benefits of having really brilliant OEMs like Rolls-Royce in a country. You know, having worked at Rolls-Royce, you realize that Rolls-Royce got the, the pick of the crop in terms of recruiting the very best, certainly at the time I was there, mechanical engineers, increasingly, of course, uh, electrical and electronics engineers, the pick of the crop. Um, and the training they got at Rolls-Royce was absolutely brilliant. And then many of those engineers went out into other industries in the UK. And so having the OEM with the really good apprenticeship programs, with the really good graduate training programs, with the really exciting cutting edge challenges using you know, the very latest, cleverest composite materials and things, that, that produces a resource which then actually flows out into other companies and upgrades their skills and technology. And if you haven't got that, 
then you're missing something very, very important, I think. I want to know where is the next Rolls-Royce coming from? Yes. That's one of my passions. That's a great question. Let me ask you a bit more about that, because, you know, the, the, I mean, you were, you were a non-exec at the Green Investment Bank, I believe. Um, I was, yes. And in some respects, part of this is about how do we grow bigger companies and how do we make our existing companies uh, stay in the UK for longer? before yes. they, they get bought and end up serving American yes. masters rather than the British masters. I mean, is there a sort of an investor confidence issue here that we need to work on, do you think? I think there is an investor confidence issue, yes. I also think in, that Britain has been so open about, the you know, to everybody, the rest of the world, about where we do things that we haven't sometimes felt, hang on, there's a bit here we need for ourselves. And I do think actually in, com- in, in companies that seem to be offering real potential for, for transformation in the energy transition area, why wouldn't we want the British Business Bank to take a significant national stake in them? Why wouldn't we want to make sure that somebody else doesn't see a company that's getting a bit beyond being a medium-sized company in a really exciting technology area um, that somebody comes along and buys it? You know, Why wouldn't we want to think Actually, we don't want that to happen because these could be the basis for an important high-tech industrial future for the UK. And it's interesting, though, isn't it, that many of those acquisitions uh, happen on behalf of the big tech companies in the US. I mean, most of our best software companies, and I've sold a a few that way myself, I have to confess. I suppose the question that you you end up asking is, well, why is it that British-based companies are not making that kind of investment into homegrown talent? We're all here. We're all together. We ought to be, you know, the vis- level of visibility of, of these businesses to one another should be greater than it is for internationally. So do we need to do more to to incentivize British based industry, do you think, ex- existing industry to support the growth of some of these really exciting scale up businesses? Yes, that would be helpful. You're, you're into an area of policy that I'm is not really my speciality. But yes, I do think, you know, I would like to see more support to keeping these businesses here and keeping a core of the investment British so that they will stay here. And of course, enabling them to grow here. Uh, because of course, that's why some of them go, isn't it? That they just haven't been able to grow at the pace and take up the opportunities they could see. Let me bring it back then to something that is perhaps more familiar territory, which is the role of innovation in all of this. And, and in particular, you, you spent some time on the Innovate UK Council and great to see the appointment of a new CEO in Indro Mukherjee there. What's your message for Indro? What, what do you think um, that, that Innovate should be focused on for the next two or three years? We seem to be moving from at a, at a government level from a, an industrial strategy to a kind of innovation strategy. And... Innovate, I think, has got to make sure that it's at the centre of that. I mean, I personally was somewhat disappointed that the new DARPA type, our new DARPA type scheme was going to be outside. You know, to me, that's part of the innovation ecosystem. Innovate should be our national innovation agency, and therefore it, it should be part of it. And the very fact that a lot of the reasons why it was being put outside was because people were concerned about the constraints of being within an organization like UKRI. To me, you should have said to Bayes, why do we put all these constraints on UKRI? Why isn't UKRI able to do all these things? Why do the controls that government put on it mean that it ends up having to develop a bureaucracy to respond to them? The very fact that you want to put it outside Innovate and outside UKRI, to me, should have questioned 
what's wrong with the way we make UKRI behave? Because when you talk to Otterline, it's not her that's putting constraints on things. <laughs> you know, I get the impression she's all for bursting out of the, <laughs> so, the yes. bag, so to speak. Absolutely. Otterline <laughs> yeah. Laser, who's the, the CEO yeah. of UKRI, I think has commented on some of the, the you know, the, yeah. the, as has the government itself. So it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? I mean, perhaps we should see and hope for some change there because well I, I in a way the one good thing I think about this thing having been put outside of UKRI is perhaps it is the first step in recognizing that we are constraining our research and innovation organization by the way it is treated in the rules it has to work under and therefore that that's probably not getting us some of the most original and innovative approaches to this we're nearly at the end of our of our conversation, this is, and it's been amazing. And I feel that we we've just scratched the surface, really. But I wanted to ask you something a little bit different, which is you're an amazing role model as a, as a leader in your field, and you've had an extraordinary career of achievement. Do you have some words of advice, particularly for young women thinking about entering what's still a very male-dominated workforce? I suppose I would say to them, if you've got as far as you have, and you find yourself in a male-dominated environment then you're probably better than all your colleagues because you've had to work harder to get there. <laughs> so remember that when you're feeling that uh, imposter syndrome or that you're a mistake. <laughs> I mean, I think it's no different from really uh, anybody that if you enjoy doing something and you want to succeed in it, you work hard and you're persistent and you very politely try not to take no for an answer. Also, I sometimes think, we train our, our engineers and scientists to analyze problems, but not always to present solutions. And, and particularly when you're in industry, what you want is somebody coming into your office when you're running a group or a, a team, you want somebody to come into your office and say, this is the problem and this is what I'm going to do about it. And too many people come into your office and give you fantastic analyses of the problem. And then you're left thinking, so you're expecting me to solve it? <laughs> So what are you going to do about it? Be a solutions person. Be excited, not by the analysis of the problem, but by then saying, so these are all the exciting things we can do to solve it. Because I think the people who like solving problems are the people who, uh, who I think get on generally. That is brilliant. Brilliant advice. And I've, I've got one <laughs> final question for you, a sort of fun question. I've, I sort of throwed it at the end of all of these conversations we've been having, which is, you know, in all of this wonderful world of, of innovation and new ideas and new approaches, which, which is your favourite? Which is my favourite? Favourite innovation. Oh, gosh, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure I have a, a favourite innovation. At the moment, what I'm really excited about is that I think where money will be made is starting to be in between all the places it used to be made. You know, everybody's recognising that green electrons are getting very, very cheap. So generating green electrons and building the kit to make them, it's all kind of pressure on reducing cost. So where you're going to start making money is, okay, what different services can you start to deliver? And somebody was, uh, was talking to me about um, okay, green electrons will be a commodity, but actually where the money will be made is, is when and where you deliver them and things like that. And I think it's that how, how the shape of conventional systems is changing in the energy transformation. But actually with this area, which I am not a native of, which is, you know, the digital and big data area. 
and how that is, has the potential to enable us to really transform things and really do things very much more cost effectively whilst also delivering a better customer experience. Um, and that I think is a hugely exciting area. And I think we have a real problem in this country, which is if you look at our politicians and the commons and the lords, there are too many people my age who are not digital natives. Uh, and I think if you look at our civil service, they're not digital natives either. You know, there are lots of people, lots of very clever people who did degrees in arts and humanities and things. And to make this work, we're going to have to change a lot of the ways we regulate things, a lot of our approaches to who owns data. And we're going to have to change a lot of the way, you know, things like what, um, what off what and, and people like that do. That's the thing that's exciting me at the moment. That's amazing. And as is so often the case when I ask that question, the answer seems to open up uh, an entirely new uh, podcast series in its own right, which, of course, we, we never quite have enough time to engage in, at least not this time. Perhaps I ought, ought as an alternative what to say to you, that in my spare time, I really enjoy embroidery. So, um, and I couldn't do that if somebody hadn't thought of the needle. Ah, well, <laughs> with that, we'll leave it there. Thank you for joining us this week. And thank you to my <laughs> guest, Baroness Brown, for sharing your thoughts on innovation, uh, on net zero ambitions, and the importance of the knitting needle. No, 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 the embroidery needle. <laughs> and the importance of the embroidery needle. <laughs> That's all for today's Supercharging Innovation Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us again for the next podcast episode and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify and other podcasting distribution platforms are available. Goodbye. <laughs>